Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Good to see you. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you. Glad to have you here. And uh, my name is Rick Tillman. I'm on the teaching team, and I get to continue our study this morning in Genesis. But uh, first of all, happy, happy spring break. You know, I mean, I think it's official spring break for a lot of folks. And yet, we woke up two mornings this week with snow on the ground. So not sure what that's all about. But I am ready for some of the rain and the snow, and I'm ready for spring. You know? But I think we're going to get a couple of really nice days here this week. Fingers crossed. Um, good thing about rain, though, is that every now and then you can walk out in your backyard and see something like this. Yeah, isn't that pretty? And my neighbor across the pasture walked out in her backyard and saw this. Crazy, huh? Isn't that awesome? On the left there, just at the end of that rainbow, is where we found this big pot of gold. <laughs> and we had to fight a few leprechauns to get it, but anyway, yeah, just kidding. You know, I've never, um, never talked to anybody when we see a rainbow. Nobody ever just goes, oh yeah, big deal, you know. People, they do what you did. Oh, because it's just, it's wonderful. And we know from a biblical perspective, it's God's promise to us that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. Y'all, most of us know that story. Bill covered it last week in his sermon, but just quick review. From the time of Adam and Eve, for 1,600 years, people populated the earth. But mankind had gotten so corrupt, so evil, so violent, that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, God says he was sorry that he even made man. Some translations say he was grieved in his heart at what man had become. So he sent a flood and wiped out the human race. All but one man, Noah and his family, who got in a boat that God instructed them to build and with several species of animals floated for 150 days on a vast ocean until finally coming to rest on top of a mountain when God had made the waters recede. And then he got out of the ark and God made a special promise to him, a covenant, a covenant that he would never again, ever destroy the planet with water. So we're going to take a kind of a closer look at that covenant and uh, some of the provisions that God made along with that. But before we do, there's a couple of things I kind of want to reemphasize, uh, from Bill's sermon, there's a couple things worthy of repeating that Bill said last week. Okay, that sounded wrong. <laughs> Out of everything that Bill taught last week, there's only a couple things worthy of repeating. That's, no, that's not. Yeah, Bill, if you're listening this morning, that is not what I meant, okay? I meant, of all the wonderful things Bill taught last week, there are two of those wonderful things I'd like to reemphasize, okay? One is that Many people still consider that whole story of Noah and the ark as like a fairy tale. 
that it was just some kind of allegorical message between good and evil. However, the scriptures and the writers of the scripture from prophets, disciples, and even Jesus himself referred to the story as an actual historical event. Jesus himself said, in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up till the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So those are Jesus' words. He referred to it as an actual historical event. The other thing I want to reemphasize is um, that the whole story of the flood, while many people look at that as a children's Bible story, um, it was quite different than that. And it's really important that we understand what the flood was about so that we can better understand the covenant God is getting ready to make. So while we picture Noah in this little floating cute boat and all these cute furry animals on the, on the ark with him, the image is better recorded by a man named Gustav Dorr, who in 1866 did a huge engraving of picturing the flood. And he, did, he pictured it with a vast, huge body of water, as far as the eye could see. And in the middle was this rock barely sticking up out of the water. And clinging to this rock were some small children. And a mom and a dad, as they were sinking beneath the water, were shoving another child up as high as they could on the rock. And there was this tiger sitting, clinging to the edge of this rock with like fear in its eyes, but looking at these children. And above them swarmed exhausted buzzards while there were bodies floating in the water all around. Now that is a grim picture. But in reality, that's the story of the flood that wiped out the entire human race. Now we can say, how, how could a God of love and kindness do such a horrific thing. Because God is a God of love and mercy, but he's also a God of justice. And he will always, always judge sin. Sin will never go unpunished. And so he had to judge it. And and here's why. In Genesis chapter one, we read about the creation of the world. God created the world. He created all the plants, animals, vegetation. And then he said, God said to himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they said to themselves, let us create man in our image. Let us create man in our own image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
So in these two passages, the image of God is repeated four times. Four times. Now much has been written and debated about what exactly the image of the God is. But the bottom line is this. Implanted in man at creation was the potential to reflect the image of the God that created him. Man has the potential to reflect things like purity and holiness and justice and God's truth. Man can do that while no other creature can reflect those things. Man in God's image can. You know, it's been said that, that no other creation was ever rised, raised to the, to the plane, to the highest plane, as to be declared in the image of God. It's been put this way. It is the special status that all human beings have as those made to reflect the creator's character and carry out his purposes in the world. That's the first point we want to remember that. It's a special status that God gave. So, he tells mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And why? Because it's God's plan, his purpose, to reveal his glory, his character in his creation through his people. That's really the very first point I really want to make this morning. That's God's plan. To reveal what he's like, who he is, his character, his glory throughout his creation through the people he made in his own image. That his plan. That was his plan. But what was going on before the flood was not it. It was a perversion. A perversion of God's character. A distortion. And he would not leave that unpunished. He would not allow his image to be so distorted as that. So he sent the flood and he wiped out the human race. At the end of chapter 6 in Genesis, we find that these waters have receded. And so Noah comes out of the ark and he looks at his family and he goes, good job, everybody. High five. Good teamwork. Man, are we lucky to have made it through that. No, actually, he came out of the ark and he built an altar and he sacrificed burnt offerings to God. You know, and when you sacrifice a burnt offering, when you kill an animal and pour its blood out on an altar, it's in recognition of the sinfulness of man, recognition of a holy and just God, and a request to have a relationship with him again. And that's why Noah was referred to as a blameless man amongst his whole generation. See, blameless isn't that he wasn't a sinner, that he didn't sin. He was blameless in the, in the sense that he, he always sought a connection with God. He recognized his own sinfulness, confessed his sinfulness to God, and always asked for a, a renewed relationship with them. That's what was called blameless in the Old Testament. And you know, that's a good question that 
we can ask ourselves. I should always be asking myself, am I, am I connected to God? Or am I just kind of going through the motions? I mean, am I doing my very best to be obedient to him? Trusting him through his spirit in me to help me be obedient? And then when I'm not, am I confessing that? Am I going to God and being honest? Confessing how I've blown it? And asking that my relationship be renewed? See, that's, that's what we should be doing. That's what God wants from us. So the Lord sees these burnt offerings that Noah has made. Picking up the story, he says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Never again. So this is where we get to see a glimpse of what's in God's heart. He wasn't saying this to Noah at the time. This was the muse of his heart, much like we got to see in Genesis 6, 6, where God was thinking to himself, I am sorry I made man. We get to peek in his heart and see what he was thinking. And that's, that's what we're doing here. We're seeing God say, oh, never again am I going to do this. Now, this was not God's thing. You know, I'm not going to do this again. Wow. Sorry about that. Kind of overreacted. You know, got mad, wiped out the human race. No, that, that's not it at all. The judgment on sin was a premeditated, direct act of the will of a holy God to judge unrepentant sinners recorded for all time so the world would know that he is holy and just and pure and righteous and he will never let sin go unpunished because that's not who he is. That is not what he looks like. That is not the image of him. This, as we look into God's heart, is his recommitment to mankind. This is where he's, he's saying, in effect, okay, I've made my point. Now let's move on. Let's move ahead. And so God, God refuses to abandon those made in his own image. And his, uh, remember, his purpose is still the same after the flood, to reveal his glory in his creation through his people. That's his goal. And he remains faithful to mankind to accomplish just that. Even though and this is the part that just brings me to my knees. Even though every inclination of man's heart is only toward evil from childhood, even though that, he still is committed. The sinfulness of man's heart before the flood is still the same after the flood. A fact the scripture acknowledges plainly throughout the scripture. I don't have a slide for this, but listen to this, these scriptures real quick. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond the cure. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7, 20. For we all fall short 
We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. The heart of man has not changed. And God knows who he's dealing with, though. Even though man's heart is toward evil, I'm committed to you. There is real comfort for me to know that God knows exactly who he's dealing with, with me. God knows who I am, who we all are, and yet he will send his son in the future to die on a cross to ultimately take care of all those sins I keep doing. You know, we need to get up every morning and look in the mirror and say, you know, I am created in the image of God. I'm created in the very image of God to reflect his glory, even though I'm such a mess. He loves me. He's committed to me enough to die for me. Even though I've blown my marriage, even though I've behaved shamefully, even though I've got these addictions I'm dealing with, you know, even though, fill in the blank, God already knows who he's dealing with. Even though he knows all of that about me, I'm still made and created in the image of God to reflect his glory. And he's committed to me. He's committed to you and he loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you and with us to reflect his glory. And it's never too late, never too late to be connected again to God or connected to God for the first time and begin to live under his forgiveness and with his spirit in you. And that's exactly what God was doing. He was starting over with Noah and starting over again with the human race. So as he does, the first thing he wants to do is reestablish and uphold the natural order of things, the natural processes on which man depends. So, he says in 622, as long as the earth, now he's still purposing these things in his heart, as long as the earth endures sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. In other words, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reestablish these patterns that will continue and man can depend on it and make their living and they can thrive and this will always be like this now until the end of the world. No more interrupting things with a flood. Okay. Then in the beginning of chapter nine, he begins to lay out some special instructions and some provisions for man that he can really begin to flourish in. So God then blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. A lot of these instructions he gives are much like the ones he gave to Adam and Eve, but some of them are really quite different. This one is the same because his plan is the same. He wants to fill the earth with his glory in his creation through his people. And so be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. 
Now, there's only eight people here. If I'm Noah's wife, I'm going, you know, big job. Now, let's move on. <laughs> okay, verse two. So just having destroyed most of mankind, now he's committed to preserving life, okay, and creating an environment where both physically and socially man can thrive. So uh, he's got a couple of new twists. He says in the next verse here, the fear and the dread of you will now fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. So for the first time, the instinct of being afraid of man is placed in the animal kingdom. And by God doing this, he's protecting man. The animal kingdom is kept in check in largely and by the extent that they have now fear of man. That's, how God's, that's God's protection. And because the flood, no doubt, destroyed most of the vegetation and the plants and trees, God makes another provision. He says, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I have given you the green plants, I now give you everything. So before, everybody was vegetarian. <laughs> now, I give you everything. All the animals will be food. Now, if I'm an animal, I'm going, wait, what? You know, what, what was that last one you just said? You know? But man's got to eat, and God was providing for man. There is a stipulation, though, in the next verse, verse 4. It says, only, you're not to eat meat with its lifeblood still in it. Now, there are a lot of... Um, a lot of writing about this and a lot of reasons for this. Throughout the old, old Testament, God's people were never allowed to drink blood. Okay, and one of the, the two of the better reasons that I believe is that, um, number one, is that life was sacred. And, and blood was the lifeblood. And so blood was sacred. is not to be treated commonly. And God wanted to preserve the respect for human life so that its precious blood was to be drained from it. It wasn't a common thing. And then you eat the meat. Another great reason is because blood was the only acceptable sacrifice for the sins of mankind. So again, the blood was a precious thing. So God wanted to preserve respect and, and uh, the fact that blood sacrifices were a very precious thing. So no lifeblood was all to be drained before the meat was eaten. And the final provision that God gives man is to protect himself against himself. He says, and for your lifeblood your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has he created mankind. 
So before the flood, the right to take another human life was reserved for God alone. But now he transfers that right, that obligation, really, into the hands of man for the protection of man. For a society would grow, this institution of capital punishment, the institution of the human government to do this, the right and obligation, was so that man could be, tech, be protected from the violence within himself. So as man was, man was protected from the animal kingdom by their fear of man, so man would be protected from man with the fear of immediate consequences. Where there is no consequence for wrongdoing and sin, lawlessness flourishes. We could talk a lot about that this morning. There must be consequences as a deterrent for sinfulness. Contrary to the way a lot of people live in our world today, life is not cheap. Life is precious. And when someone takes the life of another person, someone that's made in the image of God, society has the obligation to take that person and march them to the gas chamber. It's an obligation. And as we do, though, we have to remember, even in that, we must honor the image of God. We must respect, however diminished, we still respect the image of God in that person. Because the image of God is still precious. See, the fact that we are created in the image of God should be one of the cornerstones for civility toward one another. And we've lost that. So that's a great question we should ask ourselves. How do we treat our fellow man created in the image of God? How, how do I treat my neighbors, my friends, strangers, people I disagree with? How do I treat them? How do we react to them? See, we've got to remember that Christ died for the sins of the world, not just for us that put our trust in him. Christ died for the whole sins of the world. So how then do I treat my fellow man made and created in the image of God for whom Christ died? That's convicting to me sometimes. Because today, we feel like just because somebody disagrees with us, we have the right to wipe our feet on them. It's not true. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, when he says, we should see each other not for who we are now, but for who we may be tomorrow becoming. Bible clearly teaches that the future of the person who's in Christ, especially it, that their future is everlasting life and a glorified body. We should treat each other that way. Remember the thief on the cross accepted Christ in his last breath. 
There's many, many stories about people that were absolutely unrepentant reprobates who then gave their life to Christ and went on to do amazing things for God. The apostle Paul was one of them, who was a murderer, and yet gave his life to Christ and wrote the majority of the New Testament. So as I interface with people in a tough moment, I, who, are they, who are they created in the image of God and who might they become? And am I giving them that respect? Doesn't mean I have to agree with them. Doesn't even mean I have to like them. But it means I need to treat them with respect. C.S. Lewis says again, he says, I love this. He goes, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may one day talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw now, you'd be tempted to worship. What a better world it would be if we could treat each other that way. So God has purposed uh, to continue and committed to continue mankind so that he can demonstrate his glory in his creation through his people. He's established the world order now and he's given some good instructions uh, uh, to see that they flourish. And now he comes out and says to Noah and his sons, I now establish my covenant with you. See, these other things that he mentioned, those are things that they weren't part of the actual covenant. They were things that was set up the covenant. So now, because now he says in this chapter, he starts, he says, I now establish my covenant with you, having said all that. And so a couple quick words about covenants. Covenants was much stronger than the word promise. Covenant is a, a contract with God a contract, an agreement between two people. And there are conditional covenants and there's unconditional covenants. God would, in the future, he would make a lot of different covenants with his people, all with the purposes of expanding his glory on this planet and leading to the final new covenant with Jesus Christ. Okay? He makes all these covenants. The Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all these covenants. So a conditional covenant would be much like the one he made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, whereby he gives the law to his people at Mount Sinai, whole list of don't kill, don't murder, don't steal. And he says, if you obey my commandments, then I will bless you. Conditional covenants always have that if then. You do this, then I'll do this. That's conditional. Unconditional covenants is a unilateral promise by God, irregardless of what the other party may do. If he makes an unconditional covenant with you, he's saying, this is what I'm gonna do, period, regardless of what you do. And that's the covenant that he made with Noah and his sons. Let's read it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. And here it is. Never again will all of life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's his covenant. So, Q, 
key elements, key elements, it was an everlasting promise, okay? Everlasting till the world would end. It was to Noah and all the descendants after him. It was universal covenant. It included Noah, his descendants, but all the animals and all the creature. Uh, it was for the whole planet. It was unconditional. The blessings of the covenant, they weren't based on anything that Noah and his descendants would do. It's not mentioned. This is what God promises regardless. And finally, the promise, never again will the earth be destroyed by floods. Then he signs his covenant with this. Yeah. In the Old Testament, um, the bow was a sign of war. And whenever a battle or a war was over, the bow would be hung up on a wall signifying peace. So this is, is God's way of hanging his war bow in the sky for all to see that his war against sin through the flood is over. It's over. So even though the heart of sinful man is still there and deserving judgment, God gives an unconditional covenant for the preservation of mankind. The preservation of mankind, and by doing so, he paves the way for an even greater covenant of grace. The covenant that Jesus made when he stood in that room with his disciples and he broke some bread and he gave it to them and said, this is a symbol of my body getting ready to be broken for you. And then he poured a cup of wine and said, this is my blood, a symbol of my blood that will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the cup of the new covenant. Jesus made a new covenant, but again, a covenant of grace, unconditional. Regardless of how well you're obedient and how well you perform, because you'll never be good enough, he says, regardless of that, I will forgive your sins by putting your faith and trust in him. His promise to forgive the sins. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The judgment, God always will judge sin. And the judgment for sin, he put onto Jesus. The judgment taken care of. No flood to judge sin. Now Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice to take that judgment on himself so that those putting their faith and trust in him, the judgment is taken care of and wiped away. And they don't live under that judgment. Have forgiveness. There's kind of some good news and bad news for the world in general. The good news is that as we just mentioned, Jesus has taken the judgment for the sins of the world on himself. For those that accept that, they don't look forward, they don't live under judgment anymore. And that's really good news. But for the end of the world, and notice Jesus promised that the end of the world would never happen by flood. Flood would never destroy the world again. But like the days of Noah, 
His patience does have an end. Matthew, um, he says, one day the gospel of the kingdom, this is Jesus speaking, one day the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's you and I, that's our job. As a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. There will be an end. And again, he speaks about the end. Jesus speaking again. For in the days, we looked at this earlier, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. And this is the important part. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What will that end look like? 2 Peter chapter 3. As you look forward to the day of God, and I'm speaking to Christians here, right? As you look forward to the day of God and the speed of its coming, that day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire. Not by floodwaters now, but by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're look, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where the image of God will fully come to fruition in all of us without that sin nature. So, you know, there's kind of a final question we had to ask ourselves this morning. You know, where do you stand with regard to judgment. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ as the final judgment, that his death was the final judgment that took away your penalty and you're not under judgment? Are you trusting him for salvation? And that's what that whole salvation means. It means being saved from judgment because he took it. Am I trusting in Christ for that? And then looking for the end of the world whenever that may come, you look forward to that with hope that it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that will live with God in eternal life forever? Or are you just kind of living as if God doesn't exist and you're just not sure about him? And you're doing what you want to, doing your own thing. If so, then the judgment, like in the days of Noah, is hanging above your head. And I know that sounds like, you know, scare tactics and all that jazz. It's just the truth of what the Bible teaches us over and over again. So as we close um, this morning, I just want to give us a chance. If you're in that situation where you just said, you know, I'd, I've never really seen it that way. And I want to trust Christ for my Savior, as my Savior. And I want him to take the judgment that I, rec I recognize I deserve because of my sinfulness and you want to give your life to Christ, I just want to pray for you in a minute and just let you pray with me, along with me. God is not so concerned about the words you use, but the intent of your heart. So I want to give you a chance to do that. And if you're still on the journey and you're saying, you know, I'm still not sure about a lot of this, Rick. I mean, thanks for the information, but I got to check some things out. That's great. Check them out. Let, let us help. I mean, I'd love to help you with some of those answers. I'd love to give you some, something to read. There's a... Um, Station out here, new here, start here. There's 
They can help you and give you something to read. And I encourage you, ask questions. Find out. It is the most important decision you'll ever make. So, let's pray together, huh? Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for being so committed to us as a human race, even though we are sometimes such a mess. Thank, thank you for loving us in spite of that. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us in spite of that, even though we're all such sinners, God. Thank you for that. Help us, Father. Help us as a body of believers, Lord, to live our lives reflecting the glory, your glory, as true images of you in the world around us. Help us to do that, Father, to reveal your glory in your creation, God. Help us. And so now I just pray, um, if you want to pray along with me, if this is the, what you're feeling in your heart, you could say, Father, I, I want to accept your son, Jesus Christ, as my Savior, as my Savior from judgment. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve judgment from a holy and righteous God. I believe you are. And I want to accept Christ as my God and Savior right now and know that I'm looking forward to the end of the world with the promises of eternal life and that my sin is taken away from me. And I want to accept you right now. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and for all that you have taught us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you, um, if you happen to put your faith and trust in Christ this morning, we would love to know about that. Um, there's a place, a, a station out here, new here, start here. You can go there. And just let them know that you did that. I prayed with Rick this morning. You know what? If you got something for me to read, and that's what they'll do. They'll just give you some information that'll help you along the journey, okay? And if you're online, uh, you can go online to our website, rollinghills.org, and there's a place there, new here, start here. And you can just let us know. We'd like to help. I mean, no salesman's gonna come knocking at your door or anything like that, but we just wanna be helpful uh, to help you get some answers. Even if you haven't done that, just say, I want more information. I want to learn more. Let us help along the way. And there are people down here after every service that would love to pray for you. So you can come down here and talk to them. And a quick word about that. You know, people are down here to pray for you for whatever. I mean, sometimes we think, well, to go down front and have somebody pray with you, that's a big deal. You know, they must have a real problem. No, I pray with somebody about a job the other day. You know, if you have a, a job interview coming up, if you have a lost dog or you have a worry, anything, anything that you want to pray about, Scripture tells us by everything in prayer, with supplication, let your requests be made known to God, everything. And he's asked us to bear one another's burden, bear one another's burden. So just come on down. Anything you want to pray about, there are people down here that would love to pray with you, okay? So God bless you and let's continue to worship.